Hello and welcome to the program, Woke Up. And today is uh, we have a, on our show an author who wrote a fascinating book uh, and he's got his own publishing company and his thoughts and the way he, uh, he analyzes the sociological condition of America, some of the things within the culture, the culture wars, are a viewpoint that you don't hear on mainstream media, you don't hear on social media, you don't hear among the liberal elites. He's got a fresh perspective on a lot of the sociological uh, things that are plaguing our society and in particular the black community and he provides solutions and he just has a, a wonderful perspective and uh, he's a young man he uh during the COVID lockdowns he wrote a book uh from black uh, victim to uh to black victor and he's got his own publishing company and uh I love the way he writes. It's his first book. He's very active on Substack. And so we want to welcome to the show today, Adam Coleman. And while I was reading uh, his book, I felt like, man, I love the way this guy thinks. He's like a young Thomas Sowell. And Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate having me. Yeah. And you know, you're in your 30s, but uh, you know, as you know, Thomas Sowell didn't start writing until his mid-40s. And look what he did. Mm -hmm. And I just want to encourage you, my, my brother, my friend, that... Uh, you're an excellent writer. You have wonderful perspectives. And I want to encourage you to, to write a lot of books because I think your voice is uh, very needed in our society today. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm actually working on my second book, although uh, I haven't written anything in a couple months. Um, actually, no, probably like a month or so. Um, but I'm going on vacation next week and I'm going to be away for two weeks. And part of my vacation would be to finally like have everything escape my head and just kind of sit down and write for fun um, and, and chip away at the second book, um, which will be strictly about fatherlessness. Oh, I love that. That was the theme of your book as we, you know, as we hear from the top down from media, social media, academia, that uh, the problem, the main problem in uh, the African-American culture and some of the sociological problems or crime or unemployment or economic disparity is all about racism and systemic racism and white privilege to hold the black man down. And you, you kind of invert that, that uh, hypothesis. And so Adam, I'd, I'd like you to just turn it over to you. Like what, what's your viewpoint on that? And then what was going on within you uh, for, to, to take the time, as you know, it takes almost a year to write a book and you wrote significantly and substantively and you, you bring facts and data. What was your motivation? And I'd like for you to begin to share some of your perspectives. Sure. Um, my motivation was to be heard because for the first time in my life, it felt like um, I wasn't allowed to say certain things and I'm one of those people where if you tell me I'm not allowed to do something, it makes me want to do it more. Um, so prior to writing my book, I had no public presence. Um, most of the people around me really didn't know my political positions or anything like that. I mainly kept it to myself and, uh, and I had no problem doing that. Uh, but it wasn't until they, uh, the media and, and the general environment felt like if you do express how you feel, uh, you'll be reprimanded or you're not allowed to say certain things. You're not allowed to say certain things that are true, even if they're uncomfortable. Um, and that's what kind of led me down the path of finding my voice, uh, especially during George Floyd. Um, I just saw what it felt like a nation having a panic attack 
And I wondered, am I the only one who thinks this is vastly overblown? Like it's a tragic situation, but to extrapolate that into being George Floyd is all of us, uh, you know, it, it just felt ridiculous. As someone who's lived in multiple areas, lived in multiple states, around people of all backgrounds, I'm like, this isn't my reality. Um, and, I, and to be honest with you, it's not a lot of people's reality who are black, um, even though they like to pretend it is. Um, so it, I think that my motivation was to say something about it. Uh, I didn't like the manipulation that was happening from the media. Um, and at the same time, there were people that I generally agreed with that I didn't, I didn't agree with them 100%. And if anybody was going to say how I feel, it's going to be me. So um, I ended up writing on some free speech forums and they encouraged me to write more. And I, I always wanted to try and write a book. I just didn't have a topic to write about. And I said, you know what? I think this is it. And um, I'm not a trained writer. I, I never did it professionally. I didn't even go to college. I went to tech school. Uh, my background's in IT. And so actually I wrote my book primarily in my office because uh, I was an IT manager at the time. And I just wrote for an hour to hour and a half every day in my office and just had it come from the heart. And, um, you know, God helped me along the way. And your next book, you'll be working on fatherhood. Uh, and that that is, to me, if I were to, you know, from as a white man, obviously, but uh, someone who's lived in America and lived all over as well, uh, you, you look at the birth rates in the African-American community in 1960, it was like 73% of the children that were born uh, had mommy and daddy married. And now that's been inverted as well. And there's 72% or so of the African-American children that are born don't have mommy and daddy married. And so I think you're onto something that uh, the, the weakening of the family and uh, what's happened yeah, and it's happening in the white community, but not to the extent in the Hispanic community of children being born without mommy and daddy married. Uh, but what, what, maybe you could talk a little bit about your past as well as your perspectives on the importance of uh, fatherhood and the father's role in terms of the emotional and psychological and disciplined development of a, of a child and what these consequences have been in particular in the African-American community and, and maybe from your own experience. Sure. I mean, my background is that my father wasn't really in my life. Uh, I knew who he was. I know a lot of people don't even know who their fathers are. I know who he was. Um, I would see him randomly and seldomly. Uh, I would get maybe a phone call a year. Um, you know, after the age of five, we moved away from Detroit. He lived in Detroit. Uh, so I understand like not being able to see your, your father every day because you live farther away. But um, it's, it's deeper than not being able to see your father every day. It's your father doesn't care. Um, and, and I think that was actually the situation that I struggled with the most growing up is that I didn't hear from my father, not because he couldn't call uh, or, or not because he lives far away. I didn't hear from him because he didn't try. And I think that is a dynamic that a lot of young men are dealing with and, and young young women are dealing with as well. Uh, and it impacts us, uh, it impacts us differently. But, uh, um, you know, my story, um, I wanted to use my story as an example, 
within the book to highlight how it, it does impact a lot of boys and girls. Um, I think a lot of people who grow up in a single parent home situation pretend that everything was fine and they turned out fine. Um, and then the people outside of that situation say, well, this person turned out fine and they're okay. But what they ignore are the extremes, right? So it's kind of like if you were to look at what demographic is, is the highest demographic that ends up in prison, you would say men over women. But it doesn't mean that all men are violent criminals or, or would end up in jail, but it means that the on, the on the fringes of the extremes, right, men are more violent. And so the fringes are going to be even higher than women are. So what we're seeing is back to like the prison inmates, drug abuse, the list goes on, all the negative things that we're concerned about in our society. On the fringes are the children of broken homes, the children who grew up without their fathers um, in uncomfortable and unfortunate situations. You know, this wasn't my story, but I've talked to people who um, grew up in single parent homes and were molested by their stepfather, by the mom's boyfriend, by a family member. Why? Because there wasn't that man in the house to help protect them. Um, I've, I've heard it from words from child molesters who are, who are open about it. They look for children who are vulnerable. They look for children in single parent homes. They're the most vulnerable children. Statistics back this up. You know, I, I mean, I could go through a whole bunch of statistics in areas. Um, even just basic childhood development talks about what uh, living environment is the most beneficial for children. So I, I try to talk about the, the dynamics of kids and their vulnerabilities. Um, I didn't have the worst situation in the world. I wasn't molested, you know, thankfully. Um, I didn't experience extreme abuse, but what I did experience was neglect, which is a form of abuse. Uh, what I did experience was feeling lost in the world, where a lot of young men feel lost in the world. Um, and I'm supposed to get direction from my father and having to figure out what exactly is a man. Um, I think these are valid enough concerns. If I went through it, how many other young men are going through it? Yeah, and you came from a relatively good home in the sense that mom was providing. Uh, you were homeless a couple of times, but she was still trying, and uh, mm -hmm. and she was there and engaged, and you had an older sister. One of the things that really broke my heart in the book was when you were talking about how your mom got you into Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts and, uh, and also into sports and just the effect that you were feeling uh, even though you had your mother's influence, not having a father, not having a father to pick you up or be part or engage or to help you swing a bat. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, I think I was in my Cub Scout troop. I think I was the only kid that didn't have his father around. Um, not every father did all the events, but you would eventually see them. So you knew that they were around. And I think I was the only one that didn't. Um, and I think after a while that kind of sticks out, you know, at least from the, the kid's perspective, you notice like all these grown men come around and you don't have one, Yeah. <laughs> you know, kids, kids notice the differences between other kids, how they look, their situations, they notice these things. And so, uh, as a child, you personalize it, you, you try to figure out like, what's wrong with me that my father didn't want me around, you know, um, and, and it's not the most healthy thing to do, but that's what children do. 
um, you know, if you your parents get a divorce, you say, what did I do to make my parents get a divorce? You know, kids tend to personalize things, even if it's not their fault. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I think that scenario was something that's, that sticks out to me. And I think also growing up um, in my late teens and things like that, dealing with depression, feeling unsure of myself, and then um, I think putting everything together to kind of see how much it impacted me was actually watching my son uh, because I've always been active in my son's life. And I saw the things that he doesn't have to go through that I did. And I think for me that uh, put even more emphasis on how important a father is because when I became a father and I saw the things that I needed to do to raise my son and uh, realized like I didn't have that. So, for example, you know, I, I said in the book, the father is supposed to be the purpose compass for for young men, right? He's supposed to help guide them, give them confidence along the way, uh, reassure them that they're doing something um, that is beneficial. Um, if they need advice, he's a man. He knows what it's like to be a young man who came through it. And he's the most important man that you'll have in your life. So you should be able to have that dialogue uh, between the father and the son. I didn't have that. And my son has it with me. So he'll occasionally ask me for my advice. He'll ask me what I think about this. He, he wants to have that connection. Uh, he knows that he can reach out to me anytime he wants for some sort of guidance. And, you know, and to me, that was the most important and most exciting part about raising my son. Not necessarily the baby years, which are fine, but I wanted, I couldn't wait for him to get to like the teenage years where I could start giving him the tips to make things easier for him. Uh, tips to prepare him for adulthood, uh, because ultimately they're going to become adults and you want to prepare them uh, for success. So, um, you know, I think just comparing myself as a father and what I'm able to provide for my son versus what I received as a kid, I think that even more so kind of highlighted the the gap. Yeah, it seems like what might have been somewhat of a catalyst for your worldview and your own success as a father in terms of you know, and you, you, you're clear too, that you're not a perfect father. You make mistakes like, like all of us, mm -hmm. but when you were 21, you had your son and you reached out to your dad and, uh, you know, Hey dad, how you doing? And he didn't care that he was a grandpa now with, with your, with your baby. And then you made certain commitments to, to yourself and your own son. Uh, and then your dad subsequently died. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about how that impacted you and shaped you. Um, it's sad to say, but when I found out my father died, I didn't really feel anything. Um, you know, my, my father died, I want to say it's been, time flies, I think like six, seven years now. Um, I found out, I think it was three months after he passed away, and my mother told me through text. So that kind of just highlights like how disconnected we were. Mm -hmm. Um you know, for me to find out just months later that my father passed away, I had no idea. Um, and even after finding out, I really didn't feel anything. Um, and that's because that conversation you're talking about when I was 21, the last time I actually talked to him, um, I told myself, I'm not going to reach out to him if I'm not going to reach out to him anymore, because it doesn't seem like he's interested. 
but I won't reject his phone calls if he used to call me. I would have loved for my father to call and say, like, I'm sorry, you know, I want to try to have a relationship, but he never did. So you can't ignore calls from someone who's not trying to call you. Um, and, I, and I had a conversation with a coworker of mine, uh, talking to him about my situation. And he said, you know, if your father passes away, are you going to be okay with your decision? And I said, yes, because I'm not the one who's ignoring, right? He's ignoring me. He's not trying. And he hasn't tried throughout my entire life. So, um, I mean, I think that was the, the dynamic between myself and my father. Um, you know, just trying to, trying to, to understand the circumstance, understand where, where our relationship actually is. If we are supposed to have a relationship, is there a relationship? And I, and I think as I got older, I just concluded that there is no relationship there. Uh, and it's not because I don't want it. It's because he's not trying. Um, my mom's not trying to prevent him. You know, you hear stories. The mother's trying to stop the father from seeing the kids. I was an adult and I called him and it sounded like I was bothering him. You know, um, granted, I called his, his he had a business. Uh, I called his job, uh, but he's, he's the boss. It's his business. So he can stop what he's doing to talk to his son. But it just, it was uncomfortable because it, it was just like, it felt like um, the tone I got was like, what do you want or what are you looking for kind of tone and, um, and, and just disinterested. So that's when I, I kind of just made that decision for myself. One of the themes in the book that you hit pretty hard and you're pretty, I'd say relentless in a lot of ways is the effect <laughs> of uh feminism in the black community and what that's done to weaken men and weaken families. In fact, you say, this is pretty strong. You say, no one cares if black men had to compete with the government as providers in their own home decades ago. No one cares if feminist demands for stronger control over family within family court system gave little incentive for black women to keep black men around. No one cares if the feminist movement fought for the legalizing of black genocide by abortion without consent from black men. No one cares because black feminists have created an outline of men as being the oppressor and beneficiary to female oppression in an effort to destroy the black nuclear family structure. The goal has been to divide the black family and conquer the children along the way. That's a pretty uh, stinging indictment uh, yeah. against feminism. I'd like you to, I'd like you to open up a little bit and talk about that because you hit it pretty hard and it's really provocative and it's pretty eye-opening when you see the breakdown of the of the relationships within in, in particular the black community yeah i um you know as i got older i started learning more and more about different ideologies and, and started learning about feminism and just feminists in general um and so like my initial encounter with feminism was looking at you know the the crazy pink hair purple hair girls in college who say certain things right they say inflammatory things, very misandrous um, and hateful. But then I started, <clears throat> I started analyzing how they move and the rhetoric that they say and their general attitude. And I started realizing that's the same exact attitude that I've seen from black feminists, but we don't call them feminists, right? It's just mixed in with the culture. It's mixed in with what is acceptable. 
right? See, you can you can say feminists, and that's a specific category um, where it's only certain people, and but it's not it's not a cultural thing that uh, can kind of weave in and out, right? It's a very specific group of people, um, and they go by a term. But when you talk about black feminists, no one ever says that even though it's the same mentality, it's the same attitude, um, but they are, they're allowed to weave in and out of the culture and that's the difference. So they don't ever have to, they don't ever have to paint themselves as a feminist, right? They just do it. And then that gets molded into that's what black women are like, or that's what black women are allowed to be like. They're allowed to be openly misandrous. They're allowed to say, I don't misandrous mean that. Misandrous, just to be clear, that means that you, irrationally or just have a, a contempt for men like uh misogynist is men that hate women but misandrous is a uh, females that hate men is that is that the definition you're operating out of yes exactly okay exactly they're they're allowed to say um all men are dogs all men are this men are that they're allowed to say these things there are no repercussions that they'll ever suffer now neither misand misandry or uh misogyny is good but it, from, from a standpoint of if a man was to say the equivalent, then he would be chastised, he'd be ridiculed. If a man was to even question certain things, he would be accused of certain uh, being misogynist, he would be accused of these things. But the other way around, it doesn't happen. And so I, I realized that the people who have the most power, um, you can't criticize them. That's how you can know that someone has the most power in society. Um, and, and I think I outlined this in the book, but, you know, we talk about the patriarchy, but actually the black community in America is much of a matriarchy, <laughs> like the, 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 the black women control everything, right? They control birth, right? All women control birth, but they especially control birth because they have the option of, uh, abortion and they don't need permission from men to do so. Um, many of them exercise this. Um, we have the family court system that they can use to weaponize against men. We have the marriage system, which can be used if they want to. And they're allowed to have the animosity and the state backs them up. Um, but outside of like using the government to enforce these things, it's a, it's a general dismissal of men. Uh, that they have, and most of their interactions are going to be with black men, and that's that's what it turns out to be. But it's a general dismissal of men, general downgrading of importance of men, and that translates into um, a general dismissal of fathers, right? If you don't need a man, right? I can I, I can do bad by myself. I, I I make my own money, right? So when you say I make my own money, that reduces men to just being income earners, right? We provide nothing else to a family besides making money, right? And that's that that's insulting. If I said women only provide, uh, you know, giving birth, and I, I make enough money, I could take care of the kids from there. You you'd be reducing women to being just you know popping out babies. Mm. Um, but we don't say the same thing when women have this very attitude and say these very things, right? Um, you know, they can, they can do artificial insemination and no one cares, right? No one says, well, actually, I don't know if that's the best thing for the kid, you know, because the kid needs both their parents. 
No, it's what, what they want. They can create life absent of the man being involved and there's nothing you can do about it. And if you dare question it or chastise them for it, then you're a misogynist. So these are, these are very much so feminist rhetoric uh, that's happening within our society. We're not allowed to question these things. We're not allowed to second guess people who are doing things that uh, objectively are negative, statistically are negative. Uh, we're not allowed to criticize the misandrous behavior, the misandrous rhetoric. You can put it into songs. You can sing about it. All right, you can do these things. Now, granted, there there is some misogynistic lyrics that happen, uh, you know, and and those things exist. Um, I think the difference is that, well, that goes into a whole different area. <laughs> I was going to say there, there's a racial component to it, um, uh, and and a financial component to that. Why mis misogynistic lyrics are allowed, um, but I think that ultimately. Outside of music and entertainment, I think the, the feminist mindset is alive and well um, in the minds of many Black women, not all Black women, but many of them. They don't see themselves as feminists, even though they sound exactly like the pink, purple hair feminists on college mm -hmm. campuses. Yeah, it's uh, and also the economic structure, since we've implemented the Great Society, where if you're below the poverty line, then you get the section was section eight housing or uh you get the, mm -hmm. the the discounted government subsidized rent and then there's a little bit of welfare involved and and there's some economic incentives which i think works against both the, the male and female instead of coming together and fighting like hell for your family and your baby and your marriage covenant that agreement and discovering life together and working together it almost de-incentivizes men in, in a way, well, you know, my kid's going to be provided for, and my wife's going to get some money, and I don't have to be there and go through this, or my wife, the wife doesn't have to deal with the relationship, and almost functions in a way to, to break apart the family. And you see that by the demographic, that the, the stats that our government keeps in the transition from children being born without uh, mommy and daddy married, you know, all over the place. And you, you write a really powerful sentence here. You said the greatest privilege in America is not being white, but having a healthy mother and father in the home. I didn't know if you want to elaborate on that at all. And I think you, you kind of have, but if you had anything else to say about that, because you're, you're very strong on the family and the need for fatherhood and, and the sociological or the psychological and development of children. And, and I think you're onto something more so than systemic racism that everybody trumpets and somehow feels better about themselves by virtue signaling without doing anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting to me, you mentioned um, back in the 1960s, uh, black Americans had a strong family unit and that was in the face of objectively systemic racism that was happening in parts of America right, where America needed a cultural shift, um, where the government was allowed to oppress people uh, of different de demographics, yeah. actually oppress uh, black people and non-black people as well, because I think a society that is divided uh, is equally oppressed. Um, but you could say it was more so targeting uh, black Americans. So in the face of all those things, you still had the family together. You still had businesses that were created. You still had some economic prosperity. They didn't have the same access to things that we do today, but it wasn't a um, 
it wasn't a completely downtrodden society for them. It was an unfair society, but it wasn't completely downtrodden. And what I'm seeing today is objectively a better society for all Black Americans. Not every Black American and not every American. There are obviously hurdles. But um, what I'm seeing is a society that is actively getting better, um, even since my childhood. Just things have gotten better um, as far as how people interact with each other, um, moving closer and closer to a colorblind society, um, which I don't think is is possible. Nothing is perfect and nothing will ever be possible to a hundred percent degree. But I, I just think of it like from a sense of how often does it impact your life? And I've had racist encounters in my life, but it's just like so few and far in between that it's not even important. And that's actually how things should be. Um, and I think we were, we were on that track and we're getting better and better as a society. Um, and then we had the, the progressive elites, especially within the media and academia, break free and, and allow themselves to infect the minds of Americans, to make them think that actually the, the world that you guys have been creating that has progressively gotten better is actually uh, progressively getting worse. You've been doing it all wrong this entire time and making people second guess how they treat people, what they recognize, becoming more race conscious, um, you know, questioning, are you saying the right things? Are you avoiding saying things? And that's equally as bad. You know, having people become paranoid of, over how they interact with each other rather than just treating people as people, right? And and you refer to the you, you refer to this in your book as uh, the black grievance industry, and mm -hmm. you you name some names and you say how that, you know they they get wealthy they're making a fortune and they're the 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 elite blacks that uh, ultimately make their money as a result of stoking this hatred and keeping the black man down basically you're saying that, oh yeah absolutely um, there's there's a lot of names. Uh, there's a lot of names who are part of this the grievous industry. Um, the objective is to gain power. Is either to gain power or influence? You could say they're one and the same. Um, you can gain money. More money means more power, more influence. All of it's connected. So when you see these people, you know Al Sharpton is the easy example. When you see someone like Al Sharpton who produces nothing, who benefits no one but himself. And when someone dies and gets a camera uh, highlighted under a situation, then he shows up. Um, but, but what does he do outside of that, right? How is he able to, and, and mind you, he has a nonprofit. How is he able to take yeah, you, you, you produce a tax uh, declarations there yeah. <laughs> and, and you, you make some implications there that's millions and millions of dollars going into his organization. And what is oh, he yeah. producing? He doesn't produce anything. Um, you know, as far as he's supposedly a reverend, <laughs> uh, which, which is highly questionable these days, but he's supposedly a reverend. He supposedly cares about other people. Yet the only thing that I've seen him do is care about himself, is use people who have been hurt, who are uh, going through pain, who have had loved ones die, um, and claim to be their friend for the moment until the cameras disappear, then he, then he disappears, right? And he reaps the rewards afterwards. How is this man able to earn a million dollars 
and pay himself through a nonprofit, a supposed nonprofit, in a given year, right? How is he able to do that? And and I'm just thinking like, this is someone who is leeching off of black plight, who's who's leeching off of people who are hurting, who are in pain. And he's not the only one, right? Some people do it in in a very um a, a very low but allowable way. Like someone like LeBron James. LeBron James can make a statement. He can make a tweet. He can just show that he's being conscious, right? And that gives him a certain uh, boost. It gives him a certain look, right? Because as a sports fan, I used to watch LeBron James. And there was a point, I think it was Trayvon Martin, where all of a sudden he became this activist, a social justice activist. And he felt the need to say something when something was going on um, that was brought, highlighted in the media and oftentimes was false narratives, including Trayvon Martin. That's a whole different story. Um, but he felt the need. Why? Because it benefited him. It benefited him to have some sort of social conscious, right? We've always had uh, um, uh, black uh, celebrities, uh, people of prominence, uh, but especially athletes, uh, and I think it's the famous quote from Michael Jordan, Republicans buy shoes too, mm. right? He chose not to take a particular side publicly because it would affect his bottom line as someone who has a business, who sells products. But he also didn't want to be divisive, right? He kept his politics to himself. But for LeBron James and many other athletes, and, the, and it was just the virus that spread and kept on going on, um, you saw them come out of their mouths to talk about something they know nothing about. You saw them say the line that everybody wants them to say. The ones that you saw that did not say those lines, you saw how they got maligned, how they got characterized, how they got destroyed, right? So, I mean, there's, there's only one clear way to kind of approach this. And, and uh, we found out, especially during George Floyd, what that line is. And LeBron James and many others, they they did this uh, from either a place of ignorance or a place to make money um, or, or gain influence, because um, I can't see any other way around it. Um, and one last thing I'll say is in the book, I talk about Oprah. Oprah, uh, just to speak very, I'm speaking racially here, but I'm kind of being flippant. Oprah was a white women's favorite black person <laughs> for decades. Right. His her audience was primarily white women. And there's nothing wrong with that. She had a great show. A lot of people watch the show, not just white women. But she was especially loved by white women. And then all of a sudden. She starts to do this social justice thing, and she's saying that white people need to give up their privilege and they should apologize for this and apologize. And I'm thinking to myself, you wouldn't be where you're at if it wasn't for these people. So how <laughs> racist are they? The irony. <laughs> the irony. Um, but that's what I'm saying. Like someone like Oprah doing that, that's for show. Um, someone like someone like Oprah doing that, that's that's for show. That this is the new um, I call it the new boutique ideology uh for elitists. It's to take on progressivism, flaunt it to the public to make themselves seem like the good person. And no one will ever question how, why they have so much money or what are they doing with their money? Um, how, how much influence do they really have in our society? Why are they donating money to these politicians? What are they advocating for? 
no, no, no. I'm here for social justice. I want everybody to do well. And, you know, so that's that's what they do. Are, are you familiar with an author named uh, Manning Johnson? Have you heard of him before? Uh, Manny, is that is that um, is that a guy who like from a long time ago, like from like the 1950s? That's right. Yeah, he wrote in the 50s. Yeah. He, wrote, he wrote a book, uh, Color, Communism, and Common Sense, and he was a. Former, I haven't read it, but I've heard of him. Oh, you should read it. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, Jason Whitaker, who was on the show, he's uh, got the program Woke Up, uh, or no, uh, Dear, I got the program Woke Up. It's a uh, Dear Woke Christian, and mm -hmm. uh, just like hey, you know. If, we're, we've been lied to here, you know, with this critical social justice. And, and he says that a lot of the tactics that are used today that by the elite, you know, the, the, the is we're referring to here, the black elite uh, are right out of the communist playbook and, and what they used to do, what the Russians were doing to infiltrate because they recognized that there was a source of vulnerability uh, culturally, culturally in the whole, cultural Marxism with uh, the oppressor, uh, oppressed victim dialectic, that what they would do is, uh, and he was a communist. He was one of the leading black communist voices. And then he realized that this was utter bullshit and it's a communist takeover. And and the Soviets were funding uh, the, the privileged black elite to stoke division and they would get paid, but then he started to see the hypocrisy. And you mentioned the exact same thing he mentions in his book that a, a lot of these uh, black elites, they don't live with black people. They live with the white people and they, they, mm -hmm. they're not in the communities. And he says the same thing. He says the exact same thing that the, the communists would give them enough money to live uh, not in the black communities, but to act like they, they were representing and the voice of the blacks. And the, the entire thing was to manipulate. It was, uh, uh, psychological manipulation for, for the entire goal to, to sow seeds of division, resentment, and hate. And so, uh, yeah, I'd recommend that book. It's an easy read. It's probably like 75 pages. Uh, but uh, I felt like what he was saying, or uh, what you are saying in your book, uh, parallels, uh, and you, you, what he said, you know, 70 years ago. Anyway, it, I just, I was kind of struck by some of the things that you're saying in that you know, um, I think I think it was when I was doing research for the book, I came across, uh, there's, I think there was like a YouTube channel that I came across that had the audio version yeah. of his book. And I listened to some of it. Um, but yeah, no, he, he's spot on. And it looks a little bit different, but it's about the same playbook. Um, and and the, I think... It's crazy how history just repeats itself, you know. <laughs> um, you know, we're we're facing the same problems, use the same people as as pawns to gain the same type of power and leverage in a society. Um, I think the only difference is that we live we now live in the information age, mm -hmm. right? And and we can find out if things are true or not if we're willing to very, very quickly. Um, you know, even in my lifetime, if you wanted to find out certain information, you had to have an encyclopedia in your house. You mm -hmm. had to go to the library, right? And, the, and they don't have everything. But now you can, you, can find, you can find all types of information. You can talk to the source themselves, right? Um, there's been the times I've written articles and I talk to the actual people that I'm about to write about. So 
you know, these things now exist with mass communication and it's, it's hard. It's, it's easier to spread a narrative, but it's also easier to counter a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, even down to book publishing, my book is self-published, whereas years ago, this would be nearly impossible for me to do. So it, it's, it's stuff like this that technology is allowing us to push back against false narratives, uh, to push back against uh, communistic tactics. Um, even just having social media where you can highlight, like I actually wrote something today talking about um, how some people on the anti-woke side are falling for leftist traps and they're becoming the very people that they criticize. And I'm able to give that message out in a quick manner, whereas years ago, I would need access to a publication, access to a a publication that would even write something about it. Um, Likely not, you know, and basically write it in my diary and complain about and someone one day reads it. So, (laughs) you know, so it's, it's a lot different these days. Um, Yeah. You know, one of the things I'd like you to talk about is yourself. Uh, One of the things you didn't mention is your, uh, well, I mean, your dad was never involved with your life, but you were, you grew up poor. And why did you, like, what made you an independent thinker with a, when you became a dad? And what was it about what, like, the allurement of black victim mindset and, what was your pathway? How much did you get sucked into uh, the, the critical social justice movement and, and the ideologies and, and how did you get out or, you know, what, what was that like for you? What was that pathway during the process in your more formative years? Because you're very clear thinking now and you see things very much for what they are and you're able to be extremely articulate about them, but you, you weren't born that way. So what, tell us a little bit more about your own personal journey into uh the ideology. So in many ways, I've always been this way. And then certain, uh, there's just been certain things that I wasn't principled enough to, to be consistent with. That's the best way of me trying to put it. So I remember when I was very young, someone in my life told me, you can't trust white people. Right. And I remember my immediate thought, even I was very young at the time, my immediate thought was, how does that make sense? Because I, our family member is black and they did this to us. That's bad. Right. So should I not trust them? Like, I don't how that doesn't make any sense. Um, and on top of that, you know, at the time we lived in a majority white neighborhood, my friends are white, their parents are white. Most of them are nice to me. I would say if not all of them were nice to me, I didn't really have any issues racially in school or at least any way that I felt that was uh, inappropriate or unfortunate. Um, and I was just like, that doesn't make any sense. If, if white people are so terrible, why do I live here? <laughs> why, why are my friends fine? Like just clear things that just like a little bit of thought um, would kind of disprove like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so I've always kind of been that way. Um, but I would say I had a, a really expansive way of looking at myself um, over the last four or five years, especially um, where I went through, I would say like 2016, man, was it 2016? Time flies, COVID ruins everything. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, man, that was a while ago. Um, Yeah, I think it was about 2016. 
um, I started traveling. I started solo traveling. And uh, after my first trip, it was bouncing around Europe for two weeks. I came back and I realized how relaxed I was. But it wasn't like uh, a relaxed, like you just sat on the beach all week or something like that. Um, it was a relaxed, like you're, you feel settled with yourself. It's because I realized I had so much uh, social anxiety. Um, and you, but you don't realize how bad it is until it's gone. It's one of those things. Um, that social anxiety is linked to my, my, um, my self-esteem, my lack of self-esteem, which is something that I struggled with my entire life. Um, I would personally link it to my lack of having a father in my life and always questioning if I'm doing things right uh, because I didn't have anybody to reassure me that I'm doing things right um, or another man to help me to reassure that I'm being a man properly uh, or I'm approaching things properly. Um, but once I, once I got rid of that, my entire life changed because one, I started having a, a wider perspective. So a lot of the things I talk about with people, I realize a lot of Americans are insulated, right? They don't really travel outside the country. They don't really talk to a lot of people outside the country. Um, and I, honestly, they don't talk to a lot of immigrants within the country. Like they might talk to them, but they don't really talk to them, ask them mm -hmm. questions about where they come from, what they experience, what it's like. And they'll tell you the honest truth because they left and they left for a reason. So why did they leave the place that they, they're born? And that's a very daunting task to leave your homeland. So, you know, I just started traveling more, started meeting people. Uh, one of the things I actually wrote about in my Substack was meeting uh, a man named Louis, um, who is uh, from Manchester, but he was living in, in Madrid. And I met him at a pub and we kept in contact. And um, we never talked politics until like a number of weeks afterwards. And he said he was for, um, for Brexit. So this is just before, I think it was just before Brexit actually happened or just after. And I asked him like, well, why are you for Brexit? Because the, the news says it's for these racist British people. And he said, I, I, I believe verbatim, the United States would never allow an outside governing body to tell it what to do. And I said, that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, we wouldn't. We wouldn't appreciate if there was like some greater national body that said, all right, United States, you can import this much and export this much. We wouldn't like that whatsoever. And so I understood it was about uh, having sovereignty um, and, and dictating what your country does, what your land does, and not have some greater body dictate the minutia of, of where you live at. Um, and he was actually the person who introduced me to Thomas Sowell. I never heard of Thomas Sowell and I was into, I was into politics, but I never, his name never came up. And it was because while I was, I was very articulate when it came to liberal, liberal stuff, watched news all the time and understood what was happening. But my understanding of things was strictly through a liberal lens. Um, but I didn't, I didn't actually reach out and talk to people who, who thought different than me and really have access to them to be honest with you. Um, and I lacked the curiosity to kind of understand these things. So as much as I was curious and defiant for many of the things in my life, I wasn't curious enough and defiant enough when it came to uh, politics. And so uh, Louis and amongst other people and, uh, you know, and traveling and just speaking to people with different perspectives, it really opened me up to understand like, I only know half of the things. I only know half of the perspectives. Actually, less than half the perspectives. 
of things. And I really should talk to people and I really should be more principled about how I feel about things because as much as you see me talk about um, black genocide through abortion, um, I talk openly about how my ex-girlfriend had an abortion. And the process of me telling myself or actually telling her, I support whatever decision you, you want to do. That's the liberal position that they tell you you're supposed to have. And that was something that she didn't want to hear. So, you know, she wants to hear reassurance, like, let's, let's do this. And, and I didn't give her that. And I felt uncomfortable uh, with her having the abortion. And I felt like I wasn't allowed to say this, right? Because that's not the Democrat thing to do. That's not the liberal position to have, right? It's to give her the freedom to do whatever she wants with her body. And, and my feelings be damned. And I'm just supposed to support her. So it's things like that. I was not principled when it came to something like you, that, even you, though, you know, just thinking of that, uh, yeah. so, you know, in, in the preparation, you know, I read your book, but then also I watched uh, several of your other interviews that you've done with my wife, you know, we'll sit around and, yeah. and we watch them together. And, and on the way to come to the interview today, I asked my wife, uh, is there anything in particular you think I should ask Adam? And she said, yeah, definitely ask him and, and get him to talk about the, the black genocide through abortion. And so this uh, specifically for my wife, a targeted question to you. <laughs> I'd like you to open up your heart about that and your perspectives. Yeah. I mean, my situation um, is, I think is a lot like a lot of people's situation. I mean, the reason we ended up in, the, in that situation of even considering an abortion was we didn't properly family plan. Like, and that's what it is. When you properly family plan, then there is no discussion as far as are you going to keep it or you not keep it, right? Because the, the reason you would even have that conversation is because your relationship is not secure, right? This is why marriage is important. It puts skin in the game for men, especially. Um, and... And I think it's it's that type of thing where that we're missing. We're missing the, mm. the proper family planning. So to kind of bring it back a little bit, when you have the feminist ideology that can live or uh, that can um, that can take it or leave it when it comes to men, and then you add onto all the um, all the ways our society says it's your choice, it's your body, you do whatever you want, you do this, you can do that. And we'll have the government back you up in every decision that you make. Like that, just, that's just like a recipe for disaster mm -hmm. because then there is no talking about marriage because we've already poo pooed marriage already. Um, we've already, we've already downgraded men. Men aren't really that important anyways. I mean, yes, I would like to get married because I would like that wedding, but outside of the wedding, uh, what exactly are you going to provide? Because I can make my own money. And, and I've seen other people have kids and, and their kids turn out fine um, without their fathers around. My, I, I didn't have my father. I turned out fine. Right. So it, it's, it's things like that. We just, we just start seeing like the slippery slope of rationalizing uh, bad family planning because everybody, everybody backs it up. Everybody makes excuses for it or they, they bail them out. Um, and, and the worst bailout is, is abortion. And, I think that that is ultimately what's what's happening. We aren't having these discussions. We've crapped all over marriage, right? Uh, I was just telling a friend the other day, we tend to see that 50% of marriages end in divorce, not 50% of marriages uh, stay 
uh, are successful and, and the people stay married. You know, as much as we talk about wealthy people, no one ever looks at how wealthy people move so they can understand how to become economic, economically successful. Um, all the rich people I know, they're all married, right? <laughs> like there's something about it. Uh, there's, I mean, statistically, the, the best outcome for a child to live in is the marriage. The best economic uh, opportunity that any person will have uh, for economic prosperity, home ownership, all these different things is through marriage. Yeah, the best way to become a, a millionaire in America is to get married and stay married. Right, right. And and then when you when you understand these things, you clearly do. And then you hear from someone who says, don't get married. You have to ask yourself, why would they be saying that? Could it be just out of ignorance? Could it be out of fear? Or could it be that it, it's something dogmatic to make sure people don't progress? And I, and I just wonder... Hmm. that's why I kind of talk about the feminist ideology um, from mainstream feminists infecting the minds of many black women to, to tell them this narrative and, and to have them think about themselves only and to say that, you know what, that guy is optional. And just so they have a marginalized class, just so they have people who cannot compete who are not able to compete, right? Just so you don't have those people who move into your neighborhood, right? Because they can't afford to live here, right? And that's why I, I reemphasize um, in many of my articles that much of what you're seeing is, is a form of class warfare. It's, it's much less of a culture war. Mm. It's much less of all these different things. You know, um, Black people are used as a mechanism for change, that point blank. So they're used as a mechanism to change for things that are horrendous and things that are for better, right? You see our president, if he wants to push something through, he says, and this will also benefit black Americans, right? Even if it doesn't, he just has to say it, mm. right? We're the mechanism for change in our society. We're a mechanism, mechanism for politics. And what, what ultimately happens is we also become the target um, because there are people who are not going to like that change. There are people who are going to resist it. So black Americans as an image, as a people, are in the crossfire. They're either being pulled in one direction and being used, or they're being shot at from the other direction because they're being used uh, for things that, um, that even they didn't ask for. So, yeah. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about some of the politics involved and some of the ideologies that are involved and, and some of the problems that we're seeing within the black community, but your book uh, is uh, going from black victim, uh, victim to black victor. And you do outline several practical steps. So let's, let's uh, wrap up our interview on, on some, some really optimistic notes. You, you say, you know, goals like restoring the family, finding purpose in your life, stop overlooking black crime, uh, question the liberal agenda, accepting peace over conflict and embrace individualism over group identity. So in the, the last segment here, the last section, I'd like you to just talk about what you see are the practical things. Uh, if, you were, if you were the winner of the debate uh, in the Republican Party and then you beat Biden uh, and you're now the president of the United States, what would be some of the things that you'd look to have uh, for policy from a political standpoint, but also uh, in the ethos within the black community that you, that, uh, that you touch on in your book, 
that you think would be extremely helpful to uh, overcome uh, fatherlessness as well as uh, poverty and some of the things that are uh, that are currently part of the the black community right now? What, Adam? What would you do if you were the president of the United States or or the or the Pope of the United States? <laughs> um, so the number one thing, and I kind of said this before, but the number one thing that anybody could do, if you want to, and I've, I've emphasized this with my son as well, multiple times, he knows this, he understands this, and I told him to move in this direction. You have to follow the order. The order is marriage, then children, not the reverse. Um, the, the order is to, as, as, especially from a, a young man's perspective, you are to build yourself up and not chase, right? And I think what's, what's happening is we have a lot of young, lost young men. You know, I was lost at one point. I'm not anymore. When I was a lost young man, I would chase, would chase women. I would chase money. I would chase things, right? Rather than trying to build myself up. Mm-hmm. Once I started building myself up, all those things that I was chasing, I don't have to chase, right? And, and you start doing things that are detrimental just for the chase, and I see a lot of people getting caught up in, in the chase and they end up with terrible outcomes. But there's it's like, order- like, like from a Christian worldview, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Adam's saying, seek first to build yourself up. And then, then, then Jesus says, and all these other things will be added to you. And it's kind of exactly what you're saying. Look, strengthen your inner man, build up your character, and, and the rest of it's going to happen. You don't have to go chasing after it. Exactly. Become a better person. Um, Every day is an opportunity for you to be a better person. Um, And I I think I'm kind of linking that to the family planning aspect because I think a lot of young men are chasing something. Uh, They're chasing women. You know, they're they're chasing uh, affection. They're chasing Mm. um, validity, right? Conquering that woman makes them a, a bigger man, a better man in their head, and it doesn't, right? Any idiot can can get laid from some random woman. Um, But what's difficult is to find someone who is on the same uh, wavelength as you, find someone who's of substance, find someone who's of character, right? That is actually something that is far more difficult, but far more more beneficial to any man's life. Um, and oftentimes that doesn't happen because you were chasing that happens because you have become something that is worthy of that type of person. So well said, so good. You sound like Jordan Peterson here now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm, I'll speak for myself. You know, I'm recently married. We're about to celebrate our two year anniversary next month. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and as much I mess with my wife a lot, we joke around a lot, but I know that, um, like if uh, I don't even want to say this, but if things were not to work out with her, then it wouldn't work out with anybody. Right. She's the perfect person for me. And I understand that. And, and I appreciate that about her, but I, I try to tell her, cause she's like, why didn't I meet you sooner? And I, and I tell her all the time that you wouldn't have liked the person that I was before. Not that I was a terrible human being, but I wasn't the man I am today. Beautiful. Right. And it's humble. Yeah, it's the truth. And she's helped me to become a better person as well. Like that book that, that we're talking about, she helped me edit the book. 
I would send her chapters of my book every day, right? Um, and and we would talk about it. You know, we we had so much dialogue. She's supporting. She's you know she supports me in everything that I do. Um, and that's something that is difficult to find. That's something that's worth having, and that's someone that's worth marrying. And and I think more more men need to kind of talk about these things. I think mm. there needs to be more men to highlight the benefits of marriage, right? Uh, the economic opportunities, you know, economically, our life has gotten better because now we have two incomes. Now we can support each other, right? Now we can do certain things. I'm able to do things that I wouldn't be able to do if I was single um, from an economic standpoint. So we, we have all of these things we're able to bring together on top of the love and support that we have for each other. And I think there are so many young men who are missing out on this because they're they're skeptical. Um, the, all they see is the fifty percent of divorces, not the fifty percent of successful marriages, <laughs> and and they they shy away from seeking something that could greatly benefit their life. And I think from a female aspect, they're seeing the same exact thing. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, young men not understanding this order, not understanding this purpose, and a lot of young women who are disappointed because the first and most important man in their life let them down. Mm -hmm. And so why would they trust any other man to, to do any better? Um, and I think that is something that lingers in the minds of many women as well. And why feminism is so attractive to them, because it gives validation as to why your father was never around, your father was abusive, your father wasn't mm -hmm. there, your father didn't support you. And it's because men are like this, men are the problem. Um, and unfortunately, what's starting to happen, especially through the internet, is that there are a lot of guys out there who are mixing in some some good things, but they're missing mixing in um, antiquated, terrible concepts where they're basically the male version of the feminists, where women are the problem, women are this, and and, and people are the problem. Mm. People have issues, and and they're they're generally rooted into some form of childhood trauma uh, and some form of sociopathy that is happening and that you're seeing in adult form. Yet we ignore that and just go to the most superficial level possible. It's because they're a man. It's because they're a woman. It's because they're black. It's because they're white. And, and this is the problem that we're facing. We're, we're, we have people who are unwilling to go any deeper than what they can see. And, and if they were just to take 10 minutes and think about things and go a little bit deeper, they'd realize that most of the narratives that are being spread around are false and they make no sense. And that um, as a country, we become a much better country if we're open enough to say that we're wrong about something. Yeah, I like what you're saying. When I was a young man and I got married young and had kids young, and for me, it was the best thing for me because I was really wild and uh, and then just to have that discipline of having to go to work and get the crap beat out of me every day and then come home and play with kids and then go to church on Sunday and start the whole thing over the next week was was better for me than, uh, you know, just chasing, chasing girls and partying and living a purposelessness life. It was just self-indulgent hedonism. And, and that happened. I wasn't looking for my wife, but I met her and I, you know, it kind of was love at first sight. And I realized, you know what, if I'm going to get her to be my wife, 
then I've got to offer something to her. I got to discipline myself. She, this woman's going places. She's smart. She's pretty. She's good with people. She's kind. She, you know, and if I'm going to get her, I have to be a better man myself. And so I think that that concept of marriage, uh, like, like you're sharing and you've been vulnerable about, about your wife, that she's like the best thing that's happened to you. And if you can't make it with her, you're not going to make it with anybody. It's like, so I think wives make us better. And I think husbands make wives better. And, and we come together and uh, make a better family. And all the statistical realities in terms of uh, lack of drug use and alcohol abuse and incarceration and, and uh, achievement academically and, and the amount of you know, economic gains, uh, it's overwhelmingly the statistics. It's better to have mom and dad together in a loving environment than someone doing it on their own. And that's not to any kind of critique about someone who's not married, doesn't have that luxury or that benefit, but it's worth fighting, fighting for and fighting for our kids for, uh, for, for men and women alike, white and black alike, for all of us to be the best humans we can be to offer, uh, our lives to, to somebody else and, and, and help them too. And so Adam, I really love your heart. I love your, your, your deep thought. I love that you don't just buy the the narrative and the party line and you're countercultural. And uh, I, I think you're doing a great work and I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in your next book. And uh, I'd just like to give you the last word and, you know, how people can get a hold of you and buy your book and support you and continue to follow you. And any, any last word you might have for our audience? Yeah. The, the, I think the, the most important thing and the thing I kind of brought together in the book towards the end is that um, much of the things that I say, that are affecting black Americans or affecting all Americans. Um, mm. Our biggest issue is family dysfunction. Um, that is the, that's the starting point that's leading to the downfall of our society. Um, nearly a quarter of children in America grow up in separate homes from their fathers, right? They grow up in single parent homes. Um, and we're number one in the world when it comes to that. Uh, the U United Kingdom is just behind us. Um, so there's something going on in the West and what's ultimately happening is it's hurting people. Um, and those hurt children grow up to become hurt adults and some of them get help, but many of them don't. Um, you know, I was able to improve myself through therapy, um, through self-improvement, through questioning things, um, through failing and succeeding. Right. But other people just accept that this is what they are. And they accept that pain as being part of their identity. And, and that's it. And this is this is what it is. Or some of them even go as far as saying, uh, this is just the culture, right? Um, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's it's things like that. The, the people are willing to rationalize the worst aspects of their life, uh, the worst aspects of, of their identity. Um, and I just want people to understand that how we fix our society is not through voting, right? That, I mean, yeah, you can make some sort of change, but it's not necessarily through voting. It's what we decide to do within our own homes. It's who we decide to lay down with. Um, it's, it's who we're responsible for and how we interact with them. That's where the, the change happens. And I think too often people are looking for a political change, for, for a cultural change, mm -hmm. um, when really the people can change starting from their home then their community, then so on and so on. And that doesn't require an elected official to do that. 
all that requires is that you make the conscious decision to do something. So if it's to write a book, like I did, write a book. If it's to tell your kids how to be a better person and how to treat people so that when they become older, they are a better person and they treat people uh, well and they continue that process with their kids and maybe they tell more people. Like that's how you shift culture. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to say that piece because I think the, the family component, the family dysfunction, that's why I'm writing a book strictly about fatherlessness uh, because I think it's it's the number one problem facing Americans. Some people talk about it, but not enough people do talk about it and not enough people give in-depth understanding as to why it's happening, how it actually is affecting children. Like the, the, the psychologists know, right? The, those are the people that, that I, I talk to and they understand, like they know. It, it's in the literature, the statistics back it up. Everybody knows these things. Yes. But we need to have more people who are not psychologists, who are not specialists in this field to understand these things, to understand how they're impacting their children. And I think most people care about their kids. So if we if we just try to implore to their, their children that their actions, what they say to their kids, how even down to, of course, who they choose as a partner highly impacts their future children, um, then I think that's when we can start to see a shift for Black Americans and all Americans, because mm -hmm. it ultimately is an American problem. Absolutely. Um, but the, as far as where people can follow me, they can follow me on Substack, um, adambcoleman.substack.com. Um, also on YouTube, I have a new YouTube channel. Hey, uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have a series called Breaking Bread, where I go to uh, meet different people in different places, and we sit down, have a meal, and talk politics. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter, at wrong underscore speak. So I'm all over the place. Uh, trying different projects. Definitely check out WrongSpeak, uh, wrongspeak.substack.com. Uh, we're now getting into news. Uh, we have some journalists, just brought on another journalist, um, and we take submissions for opinion articles. So um, definitely reach out if you want to be heard. Wonderful. And Adam, thank you so much for the generosity of your time and God bless you and your family. And thank you for, uh, for, for being on the show today. May God bless you and your family. Thank you. God bless you. Okay.